all we have to do is talk to the families of those whose child or spouse or grandparent died senselessly to gun violence or those killed by police after a traffic stop or ambushed by police in their homes. Talk to those caught in the penal system called slavery by another name and those in places of position and power who consciously or unconsciously deal with the effects of slavery, racism, and microaggressions in America. What they say, we are free, and point to Juneteenth as a marker of independence. Welcome to The Law in Black and White a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker. We are the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an alternative legal service provider, and we have been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal industry. Occasionally, we'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize there may be aspects of the law or society or culture that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning. In honor of Juneteenth this month, we're honored to be joined today by Professor Renee Harrison of Howard University. Dr. Harrison is a professor of African American and U.S. religious history at Howard. Dr. Harrison's research interests include an interdisciplinary and interfaith approach to African American religious history and culture, early American religious history, black feminist womanist thought, aesthetic theory in the arts, phenomenology, and rituals of healing and resistance. Dr. Harrison has recently published a new book, Black Hands, White House, Slave Labor and the Making of America, which documents and appraises the role enslaved women, men, and children played in building the United States and its physical and fiscal infrastructure. Dr. Harrison, we are so grateful that you're with us. We thank you for joining us today, and we're really looking forward to this discussion. I'm just so grateful to be here. So uh, this one is uh, this one is a bit special for me. Uh, Dr. Harrison, as uh, John was saying, is a professor at the Divinity School uh, at Howard. Some of you know that I have uh, uh, embarked on getting my Master's of Divinity, and I've had the fortune uh, both semesters of taking classes uh, with Dr. Harrison. So we'll have a great conversation, but I, I really think this is going to be a gift uh, and a treat uh, to our audience. So as John said, thank you very much. This month, uh, just to give some context, we celebrate Juneteenth or Jubilee Day. On June 19th, to honor and commemorate the emancipation of enslaved people in the United States. Juneteenth dates back to 1865 and is considered the longest running African-American holiday in the United States. President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, and the Civil War concluded in April 1865. It was not until June 19th of 1865 that Union soldiers arrived in Galveston, Texas, and delivered the news to Texas residents that slavery was henceforth abolished in the United States. Newly freed people celebrated with song, dances, and feasting, as many formerly enslaved people migrated to northern U.S. in the following years. The Juneteenth celebration spread across the country. 
We are excited for today's conversation with Dr. Harrison and are interested to hear her reflection on Juneteenth and more about her recent book, Black Hands, White House, Slave Labor and the Making of America. Let's dive in. Professor, now that we've got a little bit of historical context for this important holiday, and I say a little bit because there's obviously so much more that we can't get into today that you are an expert in, could I ask for your reflections at this time on Juneteenth? Well, John, I mean, before I get started, I do want to personally thank you and Brian for having me here today. I'm just elated. Brian is one of my favorite students. He always has his hand up in class, especially when it's time to go home. Well, you know how that goes. <laughs> so, you know, so, um, you know, when I, when I hear And that'll John, be the last white lie that, that, <laughs> that Dr. Harrison gives during this course. Uh, <laughs> learning doesn't take breaks. <laughs> there you go. That's right. So when I think about Juneteenth, I mean, I think about uh, Brian, given the context, the historical context of Juneteenth, and I must admit that Juneteenth as a celebratory occasion is perplexing and bittersweet to me. I mean, when you think about the story as a whole, and then there's aspects of that story. So there's some versions of the story that indicate that Blacks and Galveston were unaware that they were free until the general read the order. Now, I ask you, those of you that are listening and, and John and, and Brian, how is it possible when black people in Texas and elsewhere were fighting in the war, how is it possible that they were unaware that they were free? And how were they aware, unaware that they were free when others had been escaping to freedom prior to the reading of the order? I also add, how is it possible when the Emancipation Proclamation freeing all black people held in bondage in the rebellious states went into effect, as, as Brian said, January 1st, 1863, nearly two years prior to the order. So you mean to tell me black folks in Galveston had no clue they were free until the general, a white man, told them. This retelling of the story, I say, as the basis for Juneteenth presupposes black people were ignorant, unaware, and lacked agency. So Juneteenth is bittersweet to me because when we peel back the layers of this well-known single story account, we are faced with the hidden and egregious aspects of the story. The fact is, most black people knew they were free. Most were yearning for freedom. The egregious and illuminating part of the story is that their owners and pre-slavery advocates blatantly disregarded the proclamation and chose not to free them. And instead, these owners made them work so they could capitalize off their labors. Some owners in Louisiana and Mississippi were so egregious that when Union soldiers overtook these regions, they fled to Texas for refuge, taking an estimated 150,000 enslaved black people with them. So Juneteenth is bittersweet to me because hiding in the celebration of the single story is a larger story about being black and harmed in America. Yeah. And, and against that backdrop, uh, Professor Harrison, you know, some uh, and, and this will be a little controversial, but uh, we'll, we'll let you uh, we'll let you weigh in and hopefully parse it out for our audience. But some uh, refer to this historic day uh, as America's uh, true Independence Day. Obviously, there'll be many on the other side of that. 
Um, how do you how do you reconcile that? And and maybe how should our audience uh, through through an historic lens? How should we look at that? Yeah, Brian. When I when I hear or read that statement, and I've I've heard it quite a lot, especially recently, my first inclination is to inquire who is making that claim and for what purpose. America has earmarked July Fourth as Independence Day, and some push back on that notion, saying July Fourth, seventeen seventy six represents white colonists freeing themselves by war and declaration from the tyrannies of Great Britain. And that freeing had nothing to do with black people's freedom. So that's how it gets situated as the true holiday. They argue that Juneteenth is the true Independence Day because it represents the end of slavery in America. But what does that mean, Brian? Yeah. It is true, as Frederick Douglass points out in his speech, what to the slave is the 4th of July, that July 4th is a day colonizers rejoice, Douglas says, and enslaved persons mourn. Because while white Americans were celebrating freedom from Britain, they were holding black people in bondage. But by suggesting that Juneteenth is the true Independence Day, how do we square that misnomer with the conditions of black life in America during slavery and leading into the present? When you say it's a misnomer, Professor Harrison, what maybe you can elaborate on that for a second and what makes it that misnomer? Yeah, good question. Thank you, John. When I think about that, I can answer that from a very personal place and, and a personal place in which I push back and say, were black people free then and are they free now? I surmise that the answer lies in the responses you hear from black people living at the margins. Talk to those on the margins doing the best they can to keep their families together and sustain a living wage. Or those who are afraid to go to the supermarkets or send their children to school or fear being shot in church or a mosque. I mean, all we have to do is talk to the families of those uh, whose child or spouse or grandparent died senselessly to gun violence or those killed by police after a traffic stop or ambushed by police in their homes. Talk to those caught in the penal system called slavery by another name and those in places of position and power who consciously or unconsciously deal with the effects of slavery, racism, and microaggressions in America. What they say, we are free, and point to Juneteenth as a marker of independence. So under that theory, we haven't had Independence Day yet. We still, yeah. we still need to strive for it. Exactly. I mean, I think when I think about this historically, right? So I, I talked earlier from a, a personal point of view, but when I think about this historically, the idea that Juneteenth is the true or second Independence Day in America, that does not align with history for people then and for people now. How can we speak of black freedom when white colonists ignored the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment which Congress had passed before the general even read the order. Now, I know that some will say it's all semantics because though Congress passed the amendment in January, 1865, the amendment was not ratified until December 6, 1865. But what I'm trying to point to is the mindset of the nation, the mindset of the nation about whether it accepts black freedom. For example, quick example, Texas held off from freeing black people and did not ratify the 13th Amendment until 1870. And what are we to make of Delaware and Kentucky who did not ratify the amendment until the 20th century? Delaware, 
ratified it February 12, 1901, and Kentucky on March 18, 1976. And then there's Mississippi, who voted to approve the amendment on March 16, 1995. But Mississippi did not officially ratify and accept and approve and authorize the 13th Amendment until just nine years ago, Brian and John, on February 7, 2013. So I have a question for you two lawyers, right? (laughs) Yeah. I sometimes wonder when I think about John's question and then I set that in a historical context, I, as a historian, not a lawyer, I sometimes wonder what is the value of proclamations, orders, and laws that are blatantly disregarded by one segment of the society, but remain enforceable with the greatest gravities of penalties to another segment comprised of people who look like me. Yeah, I and and you know I'll just give a, a little bit because we we obviously want the audience to hear um, you know more from you. But when you, I guess I pick up uh, Professor Harrison, where you talked about uh, referencing the penal system and we go to Stanford uh, law professor, uh, uh, Michelle Alexander, Professor Michelle Alexander's work, uh, The New Jim Crow. And I think when you have laws on books uh, that are not enforced or says um, through subterfuge, uh, non-enforcement or otherwise that you don't have to. It sets up, and 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 I hope we're going to get to this as a. Um, I I think John and I uh, like to set these up. Here's the history. Here's the facts, and and we as lawyers always have to apply uh, the facts to the law. Um, and then where do we where do we go? And I and I hope that that's where we're going to end on this uh, on this conversation. I think for this part, it's calling balls and strikes, and I think. Uh, when we look at this, I do think we're making a lot of progress as a country, um, but there are uneven pockets. And I think if you mapped some of the maybe worst times and worst issues in our country back to those ratification dates and the states that were late ratifying, I think you I, I think you see some of this separation. Um, and as lawyers uh, and as a profession, we help make laws, we help write laws, or we influence the legislature. Uh, and I think we can take that uh, as part of our task of how do we tell the story of all of America and give everybody that independence, whether you want to uh, say we're celebrating in, in uh, uh, July 4th or June 19th. Um, how do we how do we celebrate a freedom that maybe hasn't gotten out to all uh, all Americans yet? I don't know, John, if you would add anything. to. Well, I would just say from a legal perspective, I think when you have an inconsistent application of the law when it's being enforced against some and that against others the law gets delegitimized in the eyes of the people who are suffering from that uh, inconsistent application of the law and ultimately you know as a society we can't have laws be delegitimized we we have to have the majority of society seeing the law as legitimate if we're going to operate you know in the way that we believe America is meant to operate, which is American exceptionalism. If we're going to have American exceptionalism as we strive for, 
then there has to be it can't be uneven application of the laws. So um, I th- I think yeah. your question was getting at that. Um, and as a lawyer, it always worries me when the law is being isn't being consistently applied to to all people. So uh, that would be my legal answer, maybe a social answer as well. Um, yeah. Well, l- let me and let me just put a footnote for the audience. I think when we when we talk about this concept, and I think it comes from both sides. Uh, of rule of law. That, that's what John yeah. is talking about. So when we don't have respect and enforcement uh, for the rule of law, it becomes hard to have confidence in those systems. And that's that's on both sides. I mean, we're talking about January 6th and this insurrection. We're talking about uh, lots of things. But I think for order in society all the way around, uh, regardless of your demographic, uh, there has to be that kind of respect. Exactly. Dr. Harrison, I just want to pivot slightly to talk about your new book, Black Hands, White House, Slave Labor, and the Making of America. Maybe you can share with us what inspired you to write about that book and what the main message is that you would like the readers to take away from that book. Yeah, thank you. I It's, it's funny because um, I, I love this question when it comes up in podcasts, right? because I think about a young black man, Christopher Hobson, right? He inspired the book. We were on a walkabout in Washington, DC on a weekend day. And Christopher at the time was 13 years old. I mean, Christopher now is has graduated with honors from Harvard and he's studying at Oxford in the master's program. And so his journey is just phenomenal. But the, the book that people are holding is inspired by a 13 year old, a young black male 13 year old. And we were, um, you know, on our walkabout as we do on the weekends. And um, we stopped at the Holocaust Museum and we went inside and I was just, I I cannot express how full I was from that experience. And I got to the end of the museum and there were the shoes. I'm not sure if either of you have seen the shoes at the museum. It's just, it's breathtaking. And and the the poem stays with me, like it never leaves me. These 4,000 shoes soldiers took from Jewish people as they marched into the killing fields. I mean, it just stays with me. We are the shoes. We are the last witnesses. We are the shoes from grandchildren and grandfathers from Prague to Paris and Amsterdam. And because we are only made of fabric and leather, I mean, that just kept, it just stayed in my ear. Because we are only made of fabric and leather and not of blood and flesh, each of one of us avoided the hellfire. I mean, it just, it just, I cannot express the depth of that. And so I walked out of the museum and I just, I've always had this kind of affinity. I'm a lover of Berlin and I just, I, and I'm a, I'm just a lover of the history. Right. And so, um, in that sense, right. And so I was so dismayed by the human atrocity and then I was thinking about America. Right. And I, I don't want to always kind of come off like I'm, I'm a, descended of them. I, I love my country, right? But I, it's, it's, it's the way in which we tell our stories, the way in which the stories are shaped. And so I was dismayed how America has no problem pointing outward to the atrocities of the Holocaust. And they should, right? It is an, it is an atrocious moment in history. But America fails to look inward at its role in America's slavery. And so this dichotomy was just wearing me down. And so Christopher and I would go back every weekend. And I started on this search, right? I started on this search trying to find out what, where's there on the mall that replicates the shoes, right? Where's the standalone monument to which black people can go? Where's the monument, the standalone monument to which Americans can go that is solely dedicated to American slavery, 
a monument that points us to America's crimes against black people, but also, and also, honors those black people who built the nation's capital city and played a major role in building America's infrastructure and wealth. I was so taken away and I, I just, I kept going back and I kept saying, where is it, where is it? And Christopher, 13 years old, he was, I think he was just tired of me saying it. And he said, why don't you write about it? Why don't you just write about it? And it started the journey, the book. It became, that, that question became the impetus of me sitting down and feeling some sense of accountability to the young Christopher's question. And then I started writing. 2010, and it took me 10 years to get it complete. Oh, go ahead, John. Were you going to follow up? Well, I was just going to ask, what, what message do you want the readers? What's the, the, the main message you'd like them to, to get from the book? Enslaved Black people played a role in building America's infrastructure and wealth. And why is it there is no monument on the National Mall in the National City that speaks to that truth? Yeah. I appreciate the follow-up, John, and that and that answer, Professor. I, I think we're going to delve. I want to delve a little bit deeper, if we can, um, and explore this uh, point that you were saying to John's question and the significance of memorials and the role that they play in national healing after times of injustice. I'm going to help our reader. I think you should uh, read the whole book. And as we promote the podcast, you'll have the link uh, to be able to go out and get this incredible work. But on page 269, uh, chapter seven, uh, and I think that this is intentional, uh, the chapter is called Black Memory, Black Market, and the Transatlantic Slave Trade. I quote, there is no adequate account of American history without the inclusion of American slavery. The institution of slavery in the United States is a fundamental part of American and world history. Millions of enslaved black-bodied people and their descendants were instrumental in shaping the new world. A world that ultimately enriched European families, companies, and institutions. So you specifically go on to draw attention to the lack of uh, memorials and monuments, as you and John were just discussing, that could honor the enslaved Black laborers that contributed so much to our country. I wonder if we can go a little bit deeper, and I appreciate uh, your analogy to the Holocaust and the, and the shoes, because I think that helps us remember. I think that helps us heal um, and some people might suggest that this is cultural memory limited to Blacks, but um, I think you may have a different point in your book that the cultural memory is all of ours. Yes, the cultural memory is all of ours. The American story is all of ours. And I often raise the question, how does a nation or individuals heal without the whole story? How does one or how does a nation address injustices in America from slavery to present without the voices of the injured? And that's what the, the museum points us to, the voices of the injured. They're not in celebration mode. They're in reflection mode. When you see those shoes, you're in reflection mode. So how does one address injuries in America from slavery to present without the voices of the injured? How is healing possible with a single story narrative? That means a one-sided narrative about America's history, by which we see enshrined in monuments. 
And whether I said that monument or that narrative is verbal, meaning something that's told in speech or inscribed, something that's written in a book or enshrined in a monument, how is healing possible when we have just one dimension of a story? I'm going to ask just two quick follow-up questions. And thank you for that, uh, Professor Harrison. We are talking about Professor Harrison's book, Black Hands, White House, Slave Labor uh, and the Making of America. And so the two follow-up questions I would have, this topic, this uh, subject matter that we're exploring right now, uh, seems to fall within that genre that some call critical race theory. What are the dangers of thinking about this through a critical race theory lens and maybe in effect thinking about it negatively versus thinking holistically? And it's all of our history um, that we can learn from and, and be better as a result of. Yeah. So I shy away from the conversations about critical race theory because it's not it's not geared in what critical race theory is. Right. It's geared in a ruse that many want to keep history whitewashed and single single story, right? And so we we kind of use this critical race theory without really understanding the the crux of the theory. And 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 I'm not an expert, so don't ask me what critical race theory is. But it's a rules, right? Because you want to keep history whitewashed. So what is the danger? We lose our democratic society, right? We lose this uh, this idea that out of many one, right? It's gone because really. You're not taking into account the realities and, and you're not respecting the diverse voices of the many, right? So in many ways, it's dangerous because it's undemocratic. It's dangerous because it's unpatriotic. It's dangerous because it preserves a whitewashing of history. Can I add that um, I think the word that always comes to mind to me, and it was coming to mind as you were talking about the significance of a memorial is the ability to educate. Unless people truly understand the horror, they can't identify or they won't identify with the suffering. So the idea that we would bury that so that people who don't know it in their bones, like I don't need to go to the Holocaust Museum personally as a, as a Jewish man to understand what happened because it's been told to me since the time I was an infant. I was born after that period, but it was such an important part of my parents, the fabric of their lives that it was drilled into my head from the time I, before I can remember. Um, but the reason you have it isn't for me. It's for the people who don't know how horrible it was and would be otherwise inclined to minimize it. And that, to me, is the uh, one of the great losses when we talk about hiding the history or in some way minimizing the history so it sounds better. We have to confront it. All of us need to confront it to understand it if we want to avoid its repetition and start to heal. Yeah, and, and, and here, here, John, is where I fully agree with you and then I, I kind of take it a step further because the gift is your history has been preserved privately and publicly, right? So it's the monuments are both for all Americans and those that that are in the American story that have not have that have not had access to hearing their own story and or have not or are not aware of their full story. I think about what happens in the classroom all the time, right? I give these nuggets about black history and they're and, and it's predominantly a class comprised of black students and they're in awe. They're unaware of the history. So it creates 
a sense of, I see you, you matter, cultural memory, your story is valued. It creates that dynamism that's both necessary for everyone, all groups in America, especially for me. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's very powerful and important. I'm glad you brought that out. Yeah, let, let, let me let me chime back in um, to to talk about, you know, maybe a, a landing place uh, of, of where these memorials can take us in terms of a solution, right? Because I mm-hmm. think when I hear celebrating, I hear like, okay, I want to have a, I want to have a bridge to somewhere, right? And so I think part of what I'm listening and what I'm taking out of you and John to, from you and John's conversations, and I'm sure uh, that many take out from just a reading of the history, it's it's not exactly a history to be proud of. So some don't want to confront it. So I guess my uh, would be a two-part question. One, how do we elevate this conversation in a, in a way, and, and this is what John uh, and I in some small way are trying to do through Legal Innovators, is help the legal profession from a systemic perspective uh, to be more diverse, inclusive, equitable, and so if these are the same goals for society uh, in general, how do we move towards um, getting people uh, to, to buy in uh, and maybe even embrace this idea of cultural memory and these memorials? And then how can the, maybe, maybe you'd have some thoughts on how do the memorials beyond what you and John have said, get us to a place of, of healing, right? And, and it seems to me that we are in desperate uh, need of that. So uh, I, I'd love to, to hear your thoughts. So I'm going to talk about this in a, in a wide lens to kind of encapsulate all that you, you, you've asked here. So we start with what Americans value, right? And we know that Americans value, they have valued. I mean, it's, it's clear they value a single story narrative about American history and that that single story narrative has been enshrined in monuments. Right. So then we also know that they value monuments and I'm going to go somewhere with this. And we know that because there's not one place you can go in the nation's capital and throughout the U.S. where you don't see in some enshrinement. Right. And so there's a there's a sense here that monuments preserve and shape stories and they give voice to what and who a nation, state or city values. And so monuments are encoded cultural symbols. They point to cultural memory and they speak to a people's cultural identity and aspiration. So you start with what people value and you help them to see the value in what they're valuing. But you also in erecting monuments, you're intentional about telling a story. So you not only have to value what people value, you have to be open to the story. And so that means just by way of me talking about enslaved laborers deserving a monument, right? And so do indigenous persons, that the raising of a monument to commemorate how America came to be is where we start. We start over. And I'm not advocating to say you take monuments down. I mean, in some cases, there's strong cases to take monuments down. What I'm advocating for is to expand the American narrative by telling all sides of the American story. So we look at the Lincoln Memorial, we look at the Washington Memorial, we look at the Jefferson Memorial, and these men of valor, right? These stories about these men of valor 
It's what we see. And we're in awe in terms of what we're looking at. But nothing is said about them either being slave owners or slave sympathizers. Nothing is said about how they capitalized off an institution of slavery in America. So part of it means you don't have to truth tell by shaming people. You truth tell by helping people see the fuller story. And it's my hope by the fact that people begin to see a fuller story, and this is what the whitewashing of the critical race opponents, you know, right? When you open the door and stop whitewashing history, you created the opportunity for us to see a fuller history and then enshrine that history in what we value, which is monuments. That's uh, super powerful. And if the audience wasn't paying attention, I love the words expand the American story by telling all sides of the American story. Um, that's a gift. Thank you. Well, and I particularly uh, love what you're saying, Dr. Harrison, because I was of a generation where the story wasn't told that way. And it's taken me into my, uh, some might say deep into my adult years. Um, before I've I can, really- I can quote that number, <laughs> by the way, if you'd like. Call it, call it, call it. I won't do that. He's still my much older mentor, so I, I, respect, I respect my elders. It's amazing, but Brian has become older than me, actually. Yeah, right. That, that's true. Um, <laughs> but go, go but ahead, in any case, well, uh, you know, I feel that the way I learned about these things was so superficial. Mm-hmm. And I did not. And I admit I did not. Of course, I was brought up to believe slavery was wrong, morally wrong. And that's about as far as it went. The dehumanization, the physical brutality, the things that I wasn't educated about, that I'm now learning as an adult by reading more and more. And, uh, and my kids helped me actually, you know, become more educated about these things. I feel deprived uh, myself personally of not understanding this, but I also feel ignorant and really terrible about my inability to empathize to the degree that I think I would have if I had been better educated. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I just feel that we as white people are, uh, you know, to be uneducated and ignorant about something this significant it can't be in anyone's interest. It's not in our interest. And it certainly isn't, it doesn't allow us to connect with the experience that other people have had to the degree we need to have if we're yeah. going to have any kind of real healing in, in America. Yeah. And I don't get why can't you say you're sorry for something that you didn't do. Some people say, well, yeah. I didn't do it. So what? I, when people, yeah. when, when, when someone's, spouse dies, I say, I'm sorry, I didn't kill them. You know, <laughs> it's right. just showing that you feel badly about the experience they've had. You know, I don't yeah. get the, the whole point. Um, but yeah. And I think we, we each have to get out of our own cultural context box, right? Because what I know about my history, what I know about my culture is all that matters. And it's not true because human atrocity is human atrocity. And it it, it only stops, right? It only stops when we have a, a empathetic and a sympathetic and a compassionate lens towards someone outside our box. Exactly. Right? And, you know, uh, and so... 
people have tortured and beaten and treated with you know inhumanely other whoever the other is mm-hmm. uh, for way is for so long it seems to be uh and and it's born out of fear yeah um, it's born yeah exactly it's really born out of out of fear and i you know i i always feel that i i'm speaking from a place as a as a as a black person i'm speaking from the place as a woman i'm speaking from the place of uh, LGBTQIA. I mean, I just switch back and forth. One day I'm lesbian, another day I'm queer. I mean, you know, I'm just, it just, you know, and so I just, <laughs> I have all of these lens, right, of realities that says I'm insignificant. And until we value that every human being has something significant to contribute to America, it will continue. It'll just be another group next decade. Thank you so much, Dr. Harrison, for joining us today in honor of Juneteenth. Uh, To the audience, we know you've enjoyed this. Uh, Be sure you check out Professor Harrison's new book, Black Hands, White House, Slave Labor and the Making of America from Fortress Press. Her book is currently 40% off with free shipping until June 30th in honor of Juneteenth. Feel free to check out our website and social media to get your copy. Brian and I, as always, thank you for listening to The Law in Black and White. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion. You can find us at legal-innovators.com for even more insights. You can also subscribe to our podcast and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. We look forward to talking to you next time, and be safe in the meantime.